Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds from KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochilillo. Hello everyone, this is Ashish Talila. I'm uh, invited here by Gary Cochilillo. Thanks for coming on. Okay. Um, um, so yeah, I, I wanted you to come on today um, to talk about you know uh, the Vedic tradition and quantum physics and stuff like that. And um, you know, one of the things that uh, I often think about when it comes to this particular subject um, is that um, does reality exist because I'm observing it? Or do I exist because reality is observing me? Or is it a combination of both? It's a combination of both. So, <clears throat> so let me just give, uh, because you might be familiar with how uh, the Western world views some of these problems and uh, to some extent maybe how the East views this. Uh, let me give you a sense of how uh, Vedic philosophy views this. Okay. And yeah, so one of the problems that people face when they come to Vedic philosophy is that there are many sub-schools and sub-systems, right? Uh, there are many traditions uh, in the Vedic system and uh, the system is viewed like a ladder. And uh, there are many destinations to which you can go. And based on these many destinations, there are many paths uh, some of them go further, some of them go not so further, and some of them you know, take you to the ultimate. So there are two aspects to understanding you know, the system, if you, especially if you're coming from uh, a system where there's only one destination and only one path. And these two things are that there are many destinations, but they are organized hierarchically or in an order. Uh, just like you would uh, organize things in a ladder. And uh, like just like if you're going to, you know, from one city to another, you might take some, uh, you, you might first walk down to your car, then you might, you know, take your car to the airport. In the airport, you might use a train to a terminal, then you might catch a flight when you reach to the other end. You might again walk and then, you know, catch a taxi to your hotel or something like that. So you're cycling between these uh, you know, processes because you're trying to reach a destination. Right. And uh, so, uh, and this is a simple example, just a physical you know, example. Uh, and therefore there are many destinations and there are many paths. Sometimes one path takes you from one point A to point B and then you use another path or something. Sometimes you often use all the paths in combination. Interesting. I never heard that analogy before. That's a good analogy. Okay. Um, so, uh, ask. Um, one of the things I read in, in one of your papers um, was about was it let me try to remember here um i was reading about the water molecules and um mm -hmm. 
you know, like, why can't I remember it now? Um, well, anyway, can, can you describe what I was reading about in that chapter? Maybe it'll come back to me. Okay. Uh, were you reading this in a book or in a blog uh, post? Or? You, you sent it to me. I think it was a part of a book. Okay. Yeah, so um, the, the common idea of at least one of the claims uh, of modern science and many Western philosophers materialistic philosophers is that mind is an epiphenomena of molecules. And the classic example is that just like fluidity is a property of water, but if you break down water into smaller and smaller parts like atoms and molecules, then the water molecule does not have fluidity. And uh, therefore mind is an emergent property, right? So if you emergent property of your brain, whereas the brain is, is only molecules. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and, and the problem with that view is, of course, you know, you, there are several problems, but one of the problems is that uh, when you're talking about fluidity of water, at least you are trying to explain some new property, but the properties of the mind, uh, for example, the mind has the capacity for abstraction. You can think of things that you cannot see. Um, and uh, a classic example that's traditionally been talked about is the example of a beauty. You know, what is beauty or what is goodness? What is rightness? What is justice? Um, uh, or even what is knowledge? This is, there are whole departments of philosophy, like what is knowledge is a subject called epistemology. Uh, what is beauty is a subject called aesthetics. What is rightness or justice uh, is, is the department called ethics. So there are entire departments devoted to these subjects of discussing what is knowledge or what is beauty, what is goodness, um, what is justice. And uh, the materialist would like us to say that none of these departments actually need to exist. Uh, in any fundamental sense, because everything reduces to chemicals, which reduce to atoms, which essentially are studied in atomic physics. So even if we are studying any of these subjects, we are essentially studying the fluidity of water, but the fluidity can be explained by the van der Waal forces or some molecular forces, atomic forces, and therefore these subjects themselves will be explained by something more fundamental. So, uh, um, if, if water is, you know, to us, works in a fluid way, like it changes form into whatever vessel we put it in, and it's made out of molecules the same as something solid, why is one liquid and why is one solid? It, like, like, is it the vibration, the rate of vibration in the molecules? Well, so fluidity has uh, has many explanations. Uh, so at a, at a very basic level, there is uh, there is a sense in which uh, there are atoms, oxygen, hydrogen, which are subatomic particles like quarks and leptons and so on. But that itself doesn't explain uh, how fluidity comes about. So there are other things like van der Waal forces or molecular forces which are less understood uh, because what they're trying to do is 
explain how these molecules themselves tie together. Mm -hmm. And I give this example of sometimes about, uh, think of uh, words in a language. Uh, you can have, like we're talking their words, and then you combine the words into a sentence using something we call grammar. So the grammar has structure. For example, the simplest structure in grammar is that you have a, uh, you have a subject and an object, which are both noun phrases, and they're combined by a verb. So if you can say the sky is blue, uh, the sky is a noun, the blue is a noun, and is is the verb. And that's a very simple structure, but you know, essentially all language or all grammar involves a structure. And that structure uh, you know, combines the words. So what science is doing essentially is you know, two things. One is ignoring that these, uh, you know, these things that we're studying are molecules. They are physical things that basically they have no meaning. And the structure doesn't exist, or it also exists as physical forces, right? So yeah. now when you do that, then uh, the words have a property of abstraction, so you can represent a concept. Like uh, mm -hmm. blue, for example, is a concept. And uh, sky is also, in one sense, it's a name and a concept. Uh, because there the can be sky in different places. So you can talk about your sky and I can talk about my sky. So that's in sky is a concept, but it also refers to something else. Now, physical objects don't have these capacities for abstraction or in, you know, representation or reference, which is basically to say that a physical object is a thing in itself. It doesn't represent something else and it doesn't refer or point to something else. And uh, unless and until you have the representative qualities or the abstraction qualities in physical objects, you cannot explain the mind. So the example or the analogy of fluidity being applying to the mind is, is one in one sense of you know, somewhat precocious example because you're trying to impute properties on uh, molecules uh, which, which are just not there at the fundamental level. Right. Well, one of the things that, and I'm glad now that I forgot what I was going to ask you originally because this is a, what you just explained is a really good lead into what I was going to ask you. And one of the things that I read in that paper was um, you kind of described matter as information is it yeah. is that and so, so matter is sorry matter is actually like data is is that did i understand that correctly almost like a holographic universe type of model uh holographic is is another thing but uh data and information are somewhat different and uh and, and here's the difference uh, when you talk about data you're simply talking about a level of physical complexity. So for example, let's say I, you have a series of ones and zeros, like bits in a computer. Mm -hmm. And uh, the computer will say, if you have 100 bits, it is you know, some complexity. If you have 1,000 bits, it's 10 times more complexity. So that's data complexity. That's physical complexity. But we also know 
uh, that this these thousand bits could be the same word repeated all over again. Right? So you might mm -hmm. say hello, 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 and you get like thousand bits. And uh, you could write a smaller program which says, you know, 400 times repeat the word hello. And that program could fit into 100 bits instead of 1,000 bits. So you are able to compress the stuff, uh, these 1,000 bits into 100 bits. And that compressible, the lowest, the least possible number of bits that you need to represent this, uh, these 1,000 bits is, you know, you, we call that information. So there is data and there is information. Okay. But, uh, but, but once you're able to compress that, you know, into the smallest possible thing, uh, then you get a sense of what we call semanticism, right? Because you're, you're able to write a program uh, which is able to generate that. Now, you might have used zip programs, right? You zip a oh, file, yeah. mm -hmm. email, right? So those zip programs essentially are compressing bits based on what we call redundancy in the bit sequence. So if, if the program sees you know, the sequence one, 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 repeat two or three times and will say this sequence of four bits, one, 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 doesn't have to be, you know, encoded four times or three times. It can be encoded once and then you can say multiply by three or something, which is a smaller representation than. So if there's redundancy in the text, then you, then you compress it. But... Uh, a compression program is not able to generate an algorithm which, which can generate this stuff. Right? Uh, similarly, if you're writing in, in, in schools and colleges, you're asked to read a subject or a you know, paper or a book and then write a smaller essay or a thesis where you say that this one paragraph or three paragraphs summarize the whole book or the whole chapter. To do that, we have to be able to process meaning because otherwise we won't be able to compress the stuff and summarize the stuff which we can call abstraction, right? So you can look at, you can read all the sentences in the book and then you understand something and then you zoom out of the book and say, what does it really say? So data, information, and then meaning. If you take these three levels, then the, the, the letters in the book are the data. And uh, if you could write an algorithm that compresses that data into, you know, something a zip file of that, you know, ebook, if you if you were, uh, then uh, so that would be information. But then, smaller pieces or uh, you know, one paragraph summary of like a paper has an abstract. That abstraction cannot be generated by a computer cannot be generated physically. You have to understand what the whole paper means and then you can write that. So there are, there are different levels of uh, this ability to compress or abstract or write a precess or summary. Uh, and certain things are possible at the physical level and then you get into that other level which is impossible. Hmm. So, so kind of like what you're saying is um, Everything like like everything sort of starts out at this data level. It gets compressed into information, and then through our ability to abstract with that information, creates reality. Well, so once you no, it, it's it's so so the reality is so once you are able to abstract this information, you know that 
even the text had meaning because yes. you were able to yeah so it, it's no longer data it's it's actually language right it's no longer just ones and zeros which themselves have very little meaning I mean, the one and zero is simply a very simple meaning up or down that's how the bits are represented in a computer mm -hmm. there is a property called spin in in an in an electron and the spin is up or spin is down so the up spin is zero and the down spin is one or could be vice versa but basically up and down but up and down is not the only type of meaning how do you construct everything out of you know up and down so the, the claim is that the world is meaningful. It's not just meaningful. The meaning is not just in my mind, but the world is itself meaningful in the sense, for example, we can say the apple is red. Now, according to science, the idea that there is an apple is an illusion. Redness is also an illusion. Yes. And the idea yes. that the apple is red is also an illusion because reality is basically uh, subatomic particles which are being combined. And when these subatomic particles transition the state, some energy is emitted. And that energy has a frequency which we interpret as redness. And uh, that's the best uh, we can do as far as redness is concerned. As far as Apple is concerned, it's a total, um, you know, there's, there's no such thing as an Apple. In fact, you don't even want to draw a boundary around some atoms and molecules and say that's that's what we call an apple because uh, around that apple is, is also other atoms and molecules which you call air, right? right? So the apple doesn't exist in science. It is a mental construction uh, by our minds. But if we say that if, if, if the mind is also a molecule, then how is the brain or the mind able to create this uh, idea of an apple? And uh, if the mind is able to represent a concept like apple and a concept like redness, then there is a representative property in the atoms. Right? So the atoms are not physical. An atom can be a symbol of red. An atom can be, and I'm losing atom, you know, it could be a molecule, it could be some aggregation, but some subatomic reality can represent the idea of redness. Some subatomic reality can represent the idea, uh, you know, apple. Because otherwise, my we would just not be able to use this language or understand this language. And if this subatomic reality can represent redness and apple, in that situation, what is it that's representing these things at the subatomic level? Right. So. That comes down to saying that the atoms and molecules themselves encode meaning. It is not just up and down. It is redness and appleness and you know beauty and goodness and justice. All these ideas can be re represented. So <clears throat> essentially, the atoms have two aspects or should have two aspects. One is a physical aspect where uh, there is uh, there is something that exists, and then there is another aspect what it means. So in science, we only study what exists, not what it means. Hmm. Um, so where do the rules for all this come from? Like, like who decides 
what represents what? Is it our consciousness or is it already contained within the atomic matter and data or information? I should say information, sorry. Yes, it is objective and subjective. So uh, just like, for, so, so there, there are problems in, in both of these, right? This is the debate how objective versus subjective is framed. So for example, there's an apple out there and you close your eyes and uh, you can say that the apple, I don't see the apple, therefore the apple must not exist. That's a, you know, that's a bad position because somebody else can see the apple. Right. right. So to say that the apple is totally subjective is false because I can close my eyes or I can go to sleep and I might not see this apple. So it, it's not uh, uh, you know, totally subjective. Then, uh, but is it totally objective? Because this is the problem that people will say that, hey, you are calling it Apple and in another language, you might use a different word and a third person might use a different word. And uh, because everyone's using the different word for the same thing, therefore, I don't even know if you're having the same experience because I can't get into your mind and know what you are experiencing, what you are thinking. All I can see is you're using a different word for it. And based on this word evidence, I can assume that you are probably having a different experience and therefore there is, this is totally subjective, right? The apple yes. experience is totally subjective. Right. The uh, apple could be an orange to somebody else. Of course. Right. So, so, the, so the conversation is, is, is framed as that, uh, you know, I, I cannot so I cannot say it's totally subjective and I cannot say it's totally objective. So what what we are saying is that uh, there is an objective reality which has meaning, but that meaning is also interpreted by another person like you and me, whose mind is also has some presuppositions, it has some concepts, it has some beliefs and intentions. And there's a very complex in, inner reality which interacts with this external reality. And both these realities are meaningful, but their interaction produces what we can call an experience or interpretation which we understand. So meaning or the apple is red is emerging out of interaction with something that's you know, more or less apple-like or it is something that you know, exists as meaning and my mind has meaning. So because I can close my mind doesn't mean the apple's meaning goes away. And uh, just because I can open my eyes and see something as something else uh, doesn't mean that this whole thing is only in my mind. So it's in the interaction of these two meanings that we produce uh, you know, a statement like the apple is red. Um. So when we perceive reality with the five senses, um, is that how it works? Do we perceive with reality with the five senses and then our consciousness interprets it? Or is it the other way around? Uh, can you elaborate on that? Uh, or um, what do you mean by the other way around? What I mean by the other way around is... Um, Like, is, like, what is consciousness exactly, do you think? Is consciousness just information uh, that we are receiving through the five senses? Or 
um, is the de- or, or is what we're experiencing through our five senses consciousness basically is it is consciousness external okay so uh, th- there is a very sophisticated and complex model of what we call the mind and and the word consciousness is uh, is it kind of has different meaning for different people. Somebody mean that my ability to experience, somebody people say that it's an experience and so on. So let me just take a few minutes and explain uh, what we understand by experience and how that comes up. What are the ingredients that combine to produce experience? And then I'll just start by saying that the senses are not just five. We recognize a sixth sense, which is called the mind. Okay. So, uh, so in, in lots of places, this is described, it says the, the mind is the sixth sense. So the five senses are perceiving what we can call sensations. And the sixth sense is perceiving uh, what you can call mental intuition, but essentially it is meaning. So let me give you an example. While, uh, while you go to, you, you can sit idle, you might be sitting, you might be just thinking. Or something or some ideas might just come into your mind uh, you might be thinking about let's say Pythagoras theorem and uh, you are not seeing by the senses anything you know a triangle to which you're applying Pythagoras theorem but you're able to think about a theorem mm-hmm. a squared plus b squared equal to uh, c squared so <clears throat> so your ability to think about this is this mind's ability to intuit concepts or perceive concepts. Now, why is it called a sense? Is because we accept that there is a world of ideas, a world of like you can call it platonic world, uh, which which exists eternally as a possibility. So I can think about dinosaurs, which I cannot perceive by my senses, but I can think about dinosaurs. And uh, while I'm thinking about it, I'm accessing a world of you know ideas similarly i can i can see that uh, somebody is in pain or i can see that somebody is happy and it is and I, and I'm, by seeing that i might become happy or i might also experience some pain and suffering so i'm able to our ability to intuit uh, things that the senses cannot see because by the senses i cannot i i cannot say that i see some i'm not getting any taste any touch any smell any sound any color Know, form, shape, but I'm still able to understand that you are in pain or you are happy. So that's that's the sense that's called mind. And uh, once you have the mind, the, so the mind generates meanings, right? It, it gives interpretation. If you're reading a book, sky is blue, there's some meaning. The book has a meaning. So that's the intuition of the mind. But once you get the mind, then there are three more things uh, which is we can call judgment of this meaning, and these three judgments are: is the meaning true? Is the meaning right? And is the meaning good? So these three judgments are there, and corresponding to that, there are three more, you know, divisions of quote-unquote mind, uh, which are distinguished from the mind. So they're called the intellect, the ego, and the moral sense. So the intellect will judge if this meaning is true like for example you know i might be saying something and you might be thinking yeah it doesn't match with 
my beliefs and ideas, what I know about, I don't think it's true. So the intellect's job is to compare your pre-existing memories and belief systems, decide whether what I'm saying is true. But then there's another sense which says, is it good or not? So I might explain to you that, you know, this is, this is how this intellect works. And you might say, yeah, it sounds nice. It may not be true, but it sounds nice. And that's the sense that we call the ego. Ahankara uh, is the right word, but you know, anyway, it translated into ego, but it's the sense that enjoys, that sense that says, this is good for me. And then there's another sense, which we can call the moral sense, uh, the sense of ideals, where you can say, yeah, it sounds good, but you know, how is it going to work and how you know, are people, can we really live this idea? Can we make a society out of it? Can we, is this right thing to do? Right, might seem good to me, but uh, is it the right thing to do? So there is this very complex system of uh, five senses followed by the intuition of the mind, which gets the meaning, then the judgment of this meaning uh, based uh, on three other instruments, uh, which instruments like pretty much like sense instruments, which you can call judgment truth, the right, the good. And this is only the conscious part. And there's a whole unconscious realm, which is, which, which is uh, you know, even more complex. So uh, what happens is in this unconscious realm, we are not just trying to explain or, uh, so in causality, we, we distinguish three levels. One is the, you know, what you can call the cause, and there's a reason and there's a justification. And, you know, the, the truth is what you can call cause. And uh, so, for example, somebody shoots another person with a gun. And uh, so somebody can say, what happened? You can say, this guy shot with a gun. You know? And then you can say, why did this happen? And there are two meanings. Why at one level, somebody can say that he wanted to shoot so he shot him. That's an explanation. You're attributing some choice, some free will. That's a reason. But then you have to say, but why did you shoot? You're not supposed to shoot. And you can say that, yeah, I'm entitled to shoot because I was defending myself. Right? So this realm of justifications becomes the deepest level of reality. And you know, we call that karana or causal. Yeah. So from justification comes reason. From reason comes causes. The reverse sense of uh, causation. So, what is consciousness? All this stuff that you that I just described: the five senses, the meaning, three kinds of justifications, uh, three kinds of uh, judgments, and then this whole realm of justification, uh, which creates this. this. Is all material? None of it is consciousness, right? So, what is consciousness? Is simply the sense of I. And I has this ability to choose or decide what I am. And uh, everything that the five senses, the mind, the intellect, ego, moral sense, the unconscious, this is simply I am. So you can say I am an American or I am a human being or I am a man. I am so-and-so in number of years old. I am white, I'm black, I'm Indian, I'm, you know, African or whatever. So I am or I am happy. 
I am a father, I am a husband. So there is numerous types of I am. And matter is what is am, whatever you say after I am. And consciousness is I. And there's a connection between I and am, which creates this experience. So consciousness is I and matter is what you call am. Does that make sense? It does. Um, my, my next question, I, I don't know if this really even fits into it, but what, what it makes me think of is like, um, like when a person's asleep or even more, less, like, even they, they, not even asleep, let's say like a person is dead, mm-hmm. but they're still having a conscious experience of being dead without the five senses, but it's like the five senses are still there. Right. Is that just the I having that experience without the am? Okay. So the senses are not the organs. So there's a difference we draw in, in our distinct, you know, like, for example, the eye that's, you know, sitting on your face, that's not the sense. The sense is different. The, the organ is actually, because you can have sense experience while your eyes are closed. While dreaming, for example, every, you are seeing you know, colors and shapes and you know, people and you, you're talking, you're able to process meaning. So you're, when your eyes are closed, you are still fully functional as a conscious person, right? You're not having skin sensations, your eyes are closed, your ears are, it could be, you know, you could have earplugs on, but you can still hear. And what you're hearing and seeing is not what is really around you. So body, or you know, so the body has actually two connotations. One is you can say the five senses. It's not five, it's actually 10 because we include the senses of action also in the senses. But at least let's just say there are five senses. The, the percepts of the five senses are not based on the body. And the body is, is simply uh, yet another way for the senses to interact with the world. Uh, for the so, so what happens during the waking stage, so this is distinguished as the waking stage and the dreaming stage. In both these stages, the senses are involved and in the waking stage, your organs are also involved. So we draw a distinction between senses and organs. Does that uh, uh, make sense? For dreaming, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so what happens during, during waking stage is that, <clears throat> so if, if you want to understand this idea more in terms of fundamental science or fundamental physics, uh, there are two systems, you can call them A and B, and these systems are not interacting at the moment. Now they can interact and you can call that physical interaction or some causality that's happening, but what makes system A and B interact versus system A and C or A and D and whatever. So there's an element of choice involved in what you choose to interact with. Like I'm sitting in my room and I can see a tree outside and I could look at the tree and I've chosen to look at interact with this. The process of interaction can be physical, but the choice of what I want to interact with Right? It could be a tree or I could be looking at a computer screen or I could be listening to some sounds in the background. So what do I pay my attention to? That is what the sense does. 
It has the capacity to perceive, but it also has the capacity to redirect my attention uh, or my focus to this. The organs don't have that capacity. Organs can go open and shut, but the organs cannot say that I have my ear, but I can focus my sound onto some sounds and I can listen to those things and ignore everything else. That is what the sense is doing. So, so how about when a, um, when a person is dead, but still experiencing consciousness? So, yeah, so like, like going like that one step past a dream, you know, to where right. there's really nothing left to interact with, or at least, you know, far as I understand from a physical point of view. Right. So, so that there's many levels to this. There is an out of body experience. Sometimes people have out of body experiences. And like I said, there's a difference between the organ and the sense. So the sense can still exist outside the body, the sense, the mind. So we distinguish between a gross body, a subtle body, and a causal body. There are three bodies, and then there's spirit soul. And uh, so there's these four levels of reality. This is, that's what they're described as waking experience, dreaming experience, a deep sleep experience, and a transcendent experience. So this sort of this mind-body stuff—it's only two levels, and it's a—it's a very simplistic idea. But we describe experience at four levels: waking, dreaming, deep sleep, and uh, you know, transcendent. The waking is when you're interacting through the body. The dreaming is when you are—you know—you can, of course, you can see dreams, but out of body is also a dream. You know, it's—it's it's pretty much like a dream. And then deep sleep is when you have, when your unconscious still exists, it, it creates causality because your body is still working because of that unconscious. And then there is something beyond this unconscious. So when you talk about, you know, when the person is dead, what happens? Well, that the, the, the soul and the unconscious go to the next body or the body is assigned. Uh, or, you know, bodies often, and how it is often is said to be a very similar process, like you're changing body right now. And, you know, if you want, I can go into details of how that body changes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so let me complete this train of thought. And, uh, and uh, so, so, so the, so the soul and the unconscious go to the next body. And uh, once that, and uh, so once, and then the child is born, and then the child, so this is what we call the, 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 the transcendent level and the deep sleep level or the unconscious level. From that unconscious level develops this dreaming state, dreaming state in the sense of mind, sense, um, the five senses, the mind, the intellect, the ego, moral sense. So you can teach the child what is read teach the child we call this thing apple you can teach them belief systems you can teach them theories and models and theorems you can teach them what is good and bad you can teach them what is right and wrong so all this stuff that we teach the children uh, you know since they, they're growing up this is the second tier uh, what, what we call you know, the, the intermediate tier between the waking and the deep sleep is, you can call it also dreaming. So there is a world. We, so we impart this world through the five senses or, or, the, or the waking you know, experience, which is the body. So 
what happens between death yeah the, there is an unconscious but it, so so the unconscious goes into the other uh, body which means there are predispositions children have uh, predispositions like somebody is inclined towards art somebody is inclined towards music somebody just likes to play somebody is very violent somebody is very quiet and uh, you can't even in case of twins uh, two twins turn out to be completely different over time even they are born at the same time they have the same genes and so on because they have completely different predispositions and that predisposition which you cannot always immediately see is the unconscious so the soul goes with the unconscious to the next body any questions here then i can uh, explain how we think about body changing yeah i mean um So, so does that happen like immediately, or is there sort of like a bardo state in between? Uh, there is always. So, when you say bardo state, uh, I mean there is there is an unconscious body always, right? So, mm-hmm. unconscious is identified as deep sleep. You can say the soul went to sleep, or you know, deeply sleep for some time, and then uh, when he wakes up, there is bodily experience and the sense experience, the mind experience, and so on. Uh, it can be immediate. It can be after delay. I am personally, I am not very clear on that uh, answer, so I will not try to answer that. But we understand that the body changes, like just like it's changing this this life, like from. From childhood to youth to old age, and so on. Similarly, after this is what Bhagavad Gita. This is the opening thing, uh, opening conceptual thing in Bhagavad Gita, and in practically all Indian philosophy, that uh, soul is eternal, the body is changing. But mm-hmm. uh, what we mean by change is different from what people mean by motion. So um, it's a deeper topic, but we can go to that if if you want. One. I mean, I don't have a whole lot of experience with a Vedic tradition, but I have read, um, I've, I've read the uh, Bhagavad Gita, and I've also read um, autobiography of a yogi by Yogananda, and Yogananda talks a lot about um, swamis that have like these supernatural powers; they're able to um, be in more than one place at one time. Like, like mm-hmm. even that in like particular, uh, I th- you know, and, and he like quantum physics wasn't really out when he was writing this, so he didn't know that something could be in multiple places at one time. But it seems like people were able to do it without even knowing exactly what they were doing. Right. So, uh, first thing, I would not use the word supernatural. Uh, Hmm. Because what is natural? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I agree. <laughs> so it's all natural. It's all part of nature, right? And and all these capacities are are subtle levels of material reality. It's it's just that we do not understand uh, some of this reality at the present because uh, we are only confined to thinking of ourselves in terms of what we see as this body. But inside this body is is what is you know, so the body is working because of something called prana. Prana is the life, air. All these words are very crude 
because when we translate the word into a language, we're looking for some synonyms, and if those equivalent meanings are not there, then uh, we just end up using some word. But don't go by what this word means in English. Otherwise, it's just a word. Mm -hmm. So uh, the word uses prana. So so there's prana, and uh, that's you know uh, that's so. And then this body is carried to the you know the soul is carried to the next body uh, due to this uh, prana. And and the working of this. So let, let me explain. Uh, Two, two different ideas about how you know motion or so-called change occurs and uh, uh, you might have so one idea is of course that you know it's like a vehicle you have a car moving on a street and that's how we think everything is moving particles are moving like that the body is moving like that and uh, even when the body is not moving the molecules are moving right so it's pretty much the same idea it's a, it's a big vehicle a small vehicle smaller vehicle and so on right. so everything is a vehicle but we describe this idea of change as uh, you might have seen some neon signs uh, earlier on where they have small LED bulbs. LED bulb, one, the previous LED bulb switches off and the next one switches on. Mm -hmm. And uh, that switching on, succession of switching on bulbs creates the impression of motion. It is not moving, the bulb is not moving, but but due to the succession of uh, switching on bulbs, it gives the impression of movement. And uh, we can, so we can call this, this idea, we can distinguish these two ideas as motion and change. So in, in the first case, the bulb itself is moving and therefore you think, you know, things are moving. In the second case, the bulb is switching off and switching on, and therefore it gives the impression of movement. So, Come back to this body change example, all modern science is thinking that, you know, the bulb is moving. But we are saying the bulb is switched off and switched on. And the sense of continuity is explained by, you know, the presence of the soul. So you can say, I was at one time a baby. And then I grew up and I became an adolescent and I became a teenager and I became a young man. So essentially, all these bulbs are there. There is an adolescent body, there's a child body, and uh, there's a youth body, there's a teenage body, there's an old body. These are just bulbs. One bulb switches off, another bulb switches on, and you think you've changed the body. But your body has changed. But the language is different. We can say the body has... Uh, or we, so, so the right terminology is to say, I changed the body, rather than saying the body changed. Body is the same. The, you know, the, the, like the bulb, bulb has not changed. One bulb switched off, the other one switched on, and the soul is moving from one bulb to the other, which is like to say that I'm moving from one body to the other. So that's a simple example. Now, once we understand that changes in this life are basically soul establishing a connection to you know, a body, which is the you know which is bulb switching on, uh, then we can easily say that there's another bulb which you can switch on. So the process of change in this body is exactly the same as the process of the change at the time of death. But because the process of change is misunderstood in this life as motion, right? You're saying, you're saying the bulb is moving rather than mm -hmm. the bulb is moving. Therefore, people have all this problem of how can there be reincarnation? How can there be, uh, you know, 
how how can we explain this thing called soul but if we understand the waking experience or the dreaming any any experience if we understand how is it changing how am i getting a new experience if we understand that process then we can then reincarnation is not at all a problem yes yeah, it's, it's a good analogy like i i can kind of see like the bulb was already there and we just kind of almost just redirected the energy to the new bulb right which would be the like, the soul right right so all the bodies are eternally present like i'll give you a you know stark example um, the dinosaurs exist today but uh, you know and they exist as a switched off bulb and uh, when when there is a soul and there's a there's a very sophisticated complex process by how you know which soul goes to which body but once the soul goes the dinosaur will appear so and similarly and, and why we say this is because we accept that ideas are eternal like even before pythagoras thought about his theorem the pythagoras theorem existed if all of us forget euler's formula or we forget 2 plus 2 equal to 4 that doesn't mean 2 plus 2 see you know ceases to be false 2 plus 2 is still true even if none of us knows about it and that's because it exists as an idea mm-hmm. and the combination of consciousness and this idea produces an experience uh, which is which is when i becomes i am and at that point you start saying i am a dinosaur i am a human being i am american i am white i am male i am whatever old uh, and so on interesting um so how, how is it that that yogis and swamis were able to figure some of this stuff out so long ago without using modern science uh because they are focusing on mental development they are focusing on you know sense capacity that they think they are they're thinking not thinking about building a better machine they think not thinking about building a more precise instrument they are thinking about how to improve your senses how to improve your mind and in a classic example for example we might say that we have advanced in atomic physics or we know about the atom but if you look at what they're doing in the large hadron collider they're accelerating particles with more and more energy right so it's now going to giga electron volt a giga is a billion so they are making these protons or electrons go round and round and round millions of times and every time it you know goes round that you know accelerator it catches up again a little bit more speed and then they smash these atoms and enormous amounts of energy is produced so what they're saying is that to know the small thing i need to have uh, you know billions of times of more energy because it's billions of times smaller right mm-hmm. but we are not saying that we are saying you can perceive the subtle world if you refine your senses but you have to refine them billions of times mm. so, so you, so you so, have to kind of keep going over and over and over and over again until you got it right so 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 the way this this process works is that uh 
you know, there's, there's something called, we loosely can call mind or consciousness. And, and the idea is that this consciousness or this mind is, is carrying impressions from the past. And these impressions have become our belief systems and uh, we have all convoluted and false ideas. And when we look at the world through these false ideas, then we do not understand it. And then we try to force fit it into some model or some theory. Uh, you know, classic intuitive example in modern science would be that I, I can see, everybody can see that the apple is there, that it's red. We can all agree that apple is red, but science would say it's all an illusion, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody can agree that there is a red apple. Everybody can agree it has a sweet smell. Everybody can agree that it has some, you know, sweet taste. When everybody's agreeing, science will say, no, all of you are wrong. And then what is right, what nobody, none of you can see. And why that happens is because we have, you know, some people have developed this idea that, you know, sense perception is all wrong. And why that comes is due to a long history of clash with, uh, in Europe between the church and the you know, enlightenment movement, which basically says that the church will study the mind and we will study matter and uh, we will not try to cross into each other's realm. So, you know, you deal with religion and I'll deal with science. And uh, we have to be very careful of not crossing into each other's realms. So that was kind of the peace deal, or the you know, supposed agreement between religion and church and science in the beginning. And that slowly, that stance became so hardened because science started explaining or started carefully avoiding anything to do with the mind and uh, anything to do with subjectivity. And after some time, they hardened their stance and they said, well, there is actually no mind. Because if you're successful, if you can live um, just like, you know, you have two friends and they might be closely working with each other at some point in time, these two guys say that you go your way and I go mine, but they keep missing each other for some time. But after a few days and years, each guy says, ah, I can live without you. I don't need you. Therefore, you don't exist for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so that stands, which initially started by saying, we will not step on each other's toes. Uh, and you have separated each other's concerns slowly. It stands, you know, they went farther and farther away at one point in time. Science started saying the other thing doesn't even exist but they're not able to explain the other thing and they're not able to work with the other thing. So you cannot collaborate, you cannot cooperate, you cannot say there is something complementary, something we don't understand. We have to simply say it doesn't exist. And yet you're not able to explain the other thing. So that's the, these are lots of paradoxes in, in, um, in, in philosophy and it's been going on for literally at least for thousands of years, but more uh, acrimoniously in the last four or five hundred years. Yes. So, so does does science and religion need to merge in order to get to uh, get a complete understanding? I wouldn't say they need to merge. I just, I, I, so we would not, I would not use the words science and religion. These are just words about what, you know, because what is science is the study of matter. What is 
religion is the study of mind or soul and you know things like that mm-hmm. and uh, because we created this division between mind and body we created these two words which are about the study but you know the, the, the nature doesn't have these boxes reality doesn't have boxes right mm-hmm. uh, and so we have created these boxes and we have put things into these boxes which really don't exist and 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 then we are fighting with each other talking about how to merge the boxes well just go back to a state where the boxes did not exist and you can think um, without these boxes how the world would be but the problem is today people are not able to think without the boxes and it's not just you know science and religion box within science there are so many boxes right physics is a box and mathematics is a box economics is a box psychology is a box and there are like and within each box there are so many other boxes right within physics there are numerous other boxes and people don't even talk to each other mm-hmm. within those boxes so we have created these innumerable boxes or categories in terms of which we will think so if if a physicist wants to write a paper he cannot step outside the box he has to talk in terms of physics he cannot talk about you know everyday experience he cannot talk psychology he cannot so because he cannot go outside the box and therefore science is becoming its own limitation because people are not allowed to talk outside the box and uh, and you cannot dissolve the boxes because these are entrenched departments of physics with their own funding with their own management bureaucracy and you know journals which don't allow you to publish anything which if it is outside the box because if you write something which is let's say a physicist tries to write about the mind the physics journal say why don't you go to the psychology journal we will not let you publish here because we are physics and you go to the psychology guy and say well you are really talking some physics so it doesn't fit with us so we won't publish your journal uh, then you go to some vague interdisciplinary journal you try to publish your idea but it gets no attention and after some time people say oh you published in some useless journal so we are not going to recognize that as an authentic paper so after some time due to this conditioning and academic process of not stepping outside the box people stop even talking about that stuff say oh it's not helping my career mm. so you get the results for which you reward if you do not reward uh, you know certain behaviors is that pavlovian model of you know giving treats to your mouse or you know to your dog if you do not give those treats then you don't get that behavior so so how would we move forward in in make progress if we continue to have everything in separate boxes or I mean, we can't really we have to at some point you know at least start i don't know maybe collaborating uh the collaborations are very minimum and i and i said that there is no there are no incentives of collaboration at this time and and i've i've seen this i've interacted with academics the academics don't have incentives because they know that if they come and say that hey there was some knowledge you know which is previously existing they get no brownie points for saying that if they come and collaborate with some other department and they try to find a way to publish something there is no 
place where they can go to actually do that collaboration. I mean, they can collaborate in a private space, but they're not able to get credit for that collaboration and they have mm. to get credit they have to survive the academic system. Right. So, so what can happen is, is some of these, so what will happen is, you know, and this, there are many scenarios you know, in which science can go eventually. One scenario is that the, uh, the output of science ceases to be valuable. It gradually decreases in terms of value. And uh, people try to prop up these things, you know, over a period of time by more and more arguments that are not working and the funding dries up essentially, right? Today, for example, we know that, you know, physics has, has been struggling big time since the 1950s and 60s. After the advent of the standard model in particle physics, nothing fundamental has happened. So physicists move on to something called, you know, supersymmetry, string theory, and so on. And nobody knows what that thing is, what, what is it that you're talking about? It's just pure mathematics. And uh, we don't even know if there is one theory because, you know, seems like from some calculation that there are 10 to the power 500 different theories. That's a conservative estimate. So it's like unimaginable number of possibilities and you cannot verify anything coming out of that. So should we fund that physics? You know, it's a good question, but you know, people are still doing that in the physics department because governments and universities cannot just say that we will not teach physics anymore, but it's showing lesser and lesser returns. Similarly, particle physics, you know, people are investing billions and billions of dollars to smash atoms together, but it's not producing anything new. And it's, it's producing, you know, gigabytes and petabytes of data. But the problem is you cannot understand the data. It's too much noise. And then what you do is you start filtering out to get some signal, you have to filter out the noise. Then you start filtering out the data but you don't know if you're filtering out the signal or you're filtering out the noise, right? right. And it, it could well be that you actually filtered out the signal and then what you are seeing is noise and you're thinking that is the signal. So this interpretation of data has become a huge problem in science because you are carrying out experiments which you know, electrons and protons. So point being that science you know, the yield of science or the investment in science begins to reduce in terms of its impact. And, and that's already, you know, you can see that uh, most of the people, students nowadays are not going into fundamental science, not going into physics, chemistry, they're going into technology. They're trying to build better computers or better apps or better phones or, you know, better internet and, and things like that, because that is giving a return on investment on their education. So the brighter minds and the best minds are not going there. And many of these guys who even go into physics and mathematics, they cannot get jobs. So what they end up doing is working for banks because banks are trying to build mathematical models of the stock market. And they say, oh, this, my, this guy can actually do my mathematical models better because he knows some physics and mathematics. And, uh, and the physics and mathematics guy says that, oh, I've got, you know, $100,000 loan from a university, you know, uh, 
student loan and I have to pay that. The only way I can pay it is if I go to the bank. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so they start working for the bank and it starts paying them so well that they never come back to physics. Right. So the obvious way we can't rely on that model, um, would you say a better approach would be to rely on um, philosophy and mystics instead then? Yeah, that's at least, uh, what, yeah. So I, I, I do that. And, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be a mystical experience. I think people sort of confuse this, this problem and say, I have to sort of give up this external experience. I have to give up my life and then go into some jungle and meditate. That's not the case. We can also do a new science using everyday experience. For example, we can talk about how do I see the apple to be red? Right, so mm-hmm. we, we can, and these things have been debated in Western philosophy. For example, uh, George Berkeley, you know, a famous empiricist philosopher, British philosopher, he, he talked about primary properties and secondary properties. He says that properties like position, you know, mass, energy, and so on are primary properties, and taste, color, smell, sound, sight, these are secondary properties. And his argument was you actually never see any primary property. You never see temperature. You only feel heat. You never see frequency. You only see color. So all that you are talking about in terms of primary properties is something you have seen as secondary properties and you're trying to objectify them using some arbitrary standards. And then you're saying nature is exactly like this, but I have never seen it like that. So Bishop Berkeley's arguments are completely ignored because you know people wanted to move in a certain direction because if you get those kinds of arguments, uh, then you have to rethink your approach and most of the time people don't want to rethink. They say, let's give it a try and see where it takes us. And lo and behold, they build some science and you know it helps them to build better steam engines and that spurs the economy and people say, oh, this is very nice. And you know all the deep arguments about the problems they get lost, but then you have a certain road, you know you have a certain amount of rope before this thing ends, and as it begins to end, people get more and more desperate because now things are not working as well as they used to before. Right? You can take medicine as an example. Mm-hmm. Uh, the amount of investment that has to go into building a vaccine or a single drug is so huge that people have to pay enormous amount of money to just buy the medicine, right? That's, that's mm-hmm. all this politics about you know, healthcare and, and so on. And the reason is that the drug companies have to invest millions and millions of dollars to build a drug. And the outcome is uncertain. You do not know if you will actually get a drug that works. So the risk, it, it's like a gamble, right? You're, you're playing a gamble and you do not know if this gamble is going to work. So you right. actually factor in all the losses that you might have had. And the cost of the medicine is high because the number of losses are mounting. Okay. 
And uh, so, so that, that is one possible scenario. The other possible scenario is that we can actually go back to philosophy. We can go back to everyday experience. We can also take some insights on, uh, from meditation. A simple insight from meditation is that we can control our mind. We can control our senses. So we can assert our authority over this body and mind. And if we can assert that, then we can talk about free will. At least we can say that I can give up bad habits. I can change myself. And uh, I can simply shut off my senses and mind. I can control my mind. Then I can see when I'm not in control, when I'm in control. And that is, at least we can establish that there's free will. Once we establish these things, then we can progress in terms of uh, uh, you know, a scientific conversation. Because otherwise, uh, people simply say, oh, you have no choice, you have no free will. This consciousness is an illusion. There is nothing called red and apple. There is nothing called morality, goodness, beauty, justice. This is all inventions of our mind or inventions of our society. So once you start rejecting these things, essentially, you know, you reject 99% of your language and then come back to say, oh, there's mass length, you know. Uh-huh. So, so what you're saying is that one of the best ways, there's two ways Facebook could change is when the, either the process that we're using becomes useless and we have to change direction or we can learn how to start controlling our minds rather than having our minds control us. Right, and and these are these are complementary, uh, these are complementary, you know, aspects. So, uh, you know, if if, you, if 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 science starts mainstream science starts yielding yes less and less return, right? People are not being paid; they're not getting tenure. The academic jobs are not, you know, and they have a huge amount of student loans and debts. Then what happens? Most of the bright students stop going into academics. And when the bright minds stop going, there is already a huge number of problems. And then the bright people don't go there, then there's like lesser and lesser output. And the whole academic system begins to rot from inside and collapse eventually. Meanwhile, people are working in other things. And then they start coming at it and say, hey, this doesn't work according to your science. I have alternate ideas. So you will see an emergence, I think, uh, over you know, some duration of alternative ideas which are not mainstream science. They don't get published, but they get very popular because published in the sense there is an, you know, bureaucracy of academics, you know, system of journals publishing, system of approvals and ratings and, you know, what we consider standard academics. But that will weaken over a period of time. People will accept a lot of things that are not compatible with science, but everybody believes in them. Everybody does it. Mm-hmm. So, so kind of go back to your light bulb idea of one light bulb being off, one light bulb being on. That could probably that that same analogy probably could be used for this. Yes. So, yeah, you know, it's it's yeah. So this is this is why we speak about a cyclical time. Uh, you know, there is a natural trend, uh, you know, in which societies and uh, you know, individuals evolve like that, societies evolve, organizations evolve, you know, countries evolve, they, they go through a cycle, civilizational cycle, societal cycle, business cycle, individual cycle. So people start with some ideas, 
they see some initial success, they get more and more excited, they work harder and harder, then they stop seeing as many, you know, the results become disproportionate. Like there's this law of diminishing returns. But they say, hey, I already got so many results in the past, so I am, this is the right method. But they're getting diminishing results, so, so they have to work harder and harder and harder to get some result. It becomes more and more expensive. Mm-hmm. And then people, and then they have to, you know, I mean, the change is, is preceded by a collapse, essentially, because otherwise the system does not disrupt itself. It will be very nice if, you know, people realize that what they're doing is wrong and they voluntarily change. And that's what we would all like people to do, that, hey, we have, you know, reasonable arguments, we have, you know, intuitive experience, we have direct perception about things. Apple is red is, is not an illusion. Everybody can agree Apple is red, but you are saying Apple is red. Apple being red is an illusion. So your approach is not working, and yet you are stuck to that approach. Now, you can reform yourself or you'll become irrelevant over a period of time. And most of the time, what happens is it becomes irrelevant and is replaced by another system. It can reform, but that's generally the harder thing. It's, it's what we want to happen, but generally doesn't happen. Interesting. Um, how about the concept of time? Is, is time real? Yes. Uh, time real in the sense if you go to deep sleep, you have no dreams, you have no waking experience, and then you wake up and you can say, oh, the sun was, you know, you know, it was night when I went to sleep. Now it's you know, bright. So things have changed. So there is an objective change even when I was not looking at it. Therefore, time is real. Hmm. Is there a place outside of time? Uh, where, where everything has exists, everything exists at one time? Like, like, like a book, for example. You know, you can only read a book one page at a time, but... Mm-hmm. But the, the, everything that's happened in that book has already been written? Yes. So everything that's, uh, you know, it, this, this material world uh, we describe as possibility, right? The Pythagoras theorem existed before Pythagoras, you know, thought about it. And uh, if all of us forgot Pythagoras theorem, or there is something that we haven't discovered yet, it also exists even if we do not know. So the past, present, future right. exist as possibilities. Right, we just haven't gotten so, to that page yet. <laughs> yes. So there are all the bulbs that are switched off. You know, a specific bulb is switched on or some bulb is switched on at some point in time, then you start saying, oh, that's real. And so, so time is real in the sense that it switches on the bulbs one after the other. But the world is eternal because all the bulbs exist at the same time even though they may be switched off. Mm-hmm. So it's just, time is really more of our perception than anything else. No, time is objective. Even if you're not perceiving, the time is like you go to sleep in the night, it's dark. Yeah. And then you wake up in the morning, it's, it's bright. So things have changed. I wasn't you know, perceiving that while it was changing, but it mm-hmm. changed. I suppose. However, like, like for example, here's like a funny example. It just happened to me yesterday. I came from home from work last night, yesterday. I fell asleep 
and I woke up and it was, I looked at the clock and it was six o'clock and I thought it was six o'clock in the morning instead of six o'clock at night. Right. That's, that, that's got to do with the clock, right? If you had a 24 hour clock, mm -hmm. like a digital clock or something, and then you might, you won't have that problem. So there is, <laughs> uh, you know, or, or you might have a cloudy evening, for example, you might say, oh, it's early morning. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm not denying that there is an element of our interpretation, our understanding, which might not be correct. We are prone to mistakes. We are prone to illusions. You know, sometimes we have cheating propensities, you know, by which we deliberately misrepresent stuff. So all these things are there. That is not a denial of an objective reality. It's simply an acceptance of our ability to interpret and choose. So objectivity is not a denial of subjectivity or vice versa. Because these, these contradictions are arising because of this historical mind-body problem. If there is body, then they cannot be mind. Or if there's mind, then everything is subjective. It cannot be objective. No, both the subject and the object exist. They are separate meanings and they interact and they produce an interpretation. That interpretation is subject to uh, you know, the kind of process that you use. And it, it could be a false, you could be misinterpreting stuff, you, you know, you could be misunderstanding. Uh, but that, that's not a denial of, you know, there's an objective behind it. So it's just a misunderstanding. Yes, of course. Yeah, it, it's a misinterpretation. You can think that it's, a, you know, it's a morning, it could be a cloudy evening. Hmm. It's a it's probably uh, the one of the main causes of the all the problems that humans experiences would be misunderstanding. Yes, and and yes, and like I said, that uh, uh, you know, our consciousness or mind is, is is covered by layers and layers of you know beliefs and ideas and impressions uh, based on which uh, we interpret the world. Like this is this is a very uh, you've probably heard of this philosopher named Immanuel Kant. Um, and, and he said that we look at the world through goggles. And if you're seeing the world through red goggles, and the world seems red. So uh, we also have a similar idea. We, we call that, you know, realm of you know, concepts or ideals. Right? So your sense of an idea, if you, if you change your sense of what is an ideal man, uh, then you know, you start looking at the world in terms of that ideal because you're seeking that ideal. Right? So for example, an ideal man, at least in a classical sense, is somebody who's moral, who's somebody who's upright, somebody who's strong, um, you know, somebody who's honest and diligent, hardworking and so on. But the ideal today is, is a guy who's rich, a guy who's powerful, who mm -hmm. has money, influence, who has got, you know, attention of the opposite sex. That is what we think is the ideal man. Not a man who's honest, who's upright, who's moral, who's hardworking. So because we changed the idea of an ideal man, therefore we judge everybody in terms of this ideal. And we say somebody who's honest, hardworking, upright, and say, you are an idiot. You know, you should be dishonest so that you can make money and get influence or you know, attention of the opposite sex because that is what is ideal. So this is an example of how our minds are conditioned. We have 
we have developed these distorted versions of ideals and we are perceiving the world in terms of these ideals and then we what is ideal seems like non-ideal to us and what is non-ideal seems ideal to us. And if you want to get out of that, then we have to purify ourselves. There's, you, I mean, once you change your perception, uh, you know, then, then you will stop having this misinterpretation and misrepresentation and then you will actually be able to understand everything properly. And how would we do that? How do we purify ourselves? By associating with the pure. Because if, if you have, let's say, for example, if, if, you, if you always, you know, if you associate with a man who's upright and honest and diligent and hardworking, then you will start appreciating that and you'll say, yes, this is the ideal and the other stuff is stupid stuff. If you do not associate with the ideal, you and you keep saying, yeah, maybe there's an ideal, but it's not going to bring a change. You have to associate with that. If you want to know what's an ideal man, you have to associate with an ideal man. If you want to associate with ideal, if you want to know what's ideal beauty, then you have to associate with ideal beauty. If you want to know what is knowledge, then you have to associate with knowledge. You can't associate with ignorance or an ugliness and you know just say that yeah that's what i just redefined my you know notion of beauty and therefore this ugly stuff looks beautiful mm. and that's what is mostly going on so basically ignorance breeds ignorance and knowledge will bring breed knowledge exactly right if you if you and and the process is association what do you associate with you become that slowly Ah, it's, that's a, such a, a simple, sensible answer to that question <laughs> that most people probably would never even think of. Okay. That was awesome. I really enjoyed that answer. Yeah. Um, so I'm pretty close to wrapping it up. Um, do, do you have anything else that you'd like to share with my listeners? Um, and, and also, like, where they can find you, where they can get your books, your website, and all that? Uh, okay, you can uh, Google my name, Ashish Dalila, A-S-H, I-S-H, Delta Alpha Lima, England Lima Alpha. And uh, so if you search me, I think either I have a website uh, which has tons of information. You can also find my books on Amazon. and. Uh, Lots of other places, there's some information you can find. And uh, you know, on my website, there's a contact page. If you want to ask me questions, you can send me a contact. There's a forums on my website. If you want to, you know, you can ask there. I also try to record once in a while some podcasts and I'm not very regular with it. If I, people send me some questions and sort of they accumulate over a period of time, then I just go into a session and I, answer all the questions uh, sometimes uh, if the question is short but it needs more careful analysis then I'll write a blog post so I, there are many ways I can uh, I can try to help you um, and I'm, I'm here to help I am not expecting anything I don't ask people for money or, um, or anything like that so 
thank you for listening. That's all. That's that's awesome that you do that, all that for free. Um, I recently had contacted, um, I'll 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 just say his name, Deepak Chopra. I asked him to come on the show and he wanted me to pay him. So (laughs) I, I really appreciate that, that there's people out there, you know, providing knowledge for people and a direction for people and information and it's not costing them anything. And I'll also put the links to your books and your website in the notes of this episode. Sure. All right. Well, thank you for uh, taking the time to talk to me tonight. Very nice to talk to you, Gary. It was, uh, it was very nice. And uh, if you have anything more, you want to do more sessions, um, I'm always here. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to have you back. Okay. Yeah, you have a good evening now. You too. Thanks. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life. Because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you love what you listen to, don't forget, rate, review and subscribe.